Today on the Sunshine Economy, fighting climate change with commerce. Florida is a wealthy place. It has the resources necessary to defend itself and, and the world. It's just stuck in this weird dysfunctional politics of the moment. I'm Tom Hudson. Hear from two climate activists about how they hope to rally their generations to take action. People are listening to us and what we want and what we're demanding when it comes to climate solutions. It's ahead on the Sunshine Economy. Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting public radio. Delaney Reynolds and Bill McKibben are from different generations and live on opposite ends of the East Coast. Both have committed themselves to fighting climate change and rallying politicians and people and increasingly focusing on finance. McKibben can be considered the old-timer. This is Bill McKibben from Third Act. The name of his organization is a recognition of the March of Time. McKibben is over 60 and has been an environmental activist, author, and teacher for more than 30 years. Hello, my name is Delaney Reynolds. I am a graduate student at the University of Miami. I'm also the founder and CEO of the Sink or Swim Project. She may be in her early 20s, but Reynolds has been active since she was a teenager, working to raise awareness among kids and young adults about the threat of sea level rise, especially here in South Florida. Both are focused on marshalling their peers and the power of commerce on climate change. For McKibben, that means asking people over 60 to use their economic power to influence corporate climate behavior. I love Florida and Floridians, and I just, every time I walk outside, I think, this is the easiest place in the world to make the changes that we need to make. For Reynolds, it means organizing teens and young adults just coming of age politically. Bye. Bye. This was early January <laughs> when Reynolds and a group of young activists turned a petition into Florida Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed. The petition called for the department to come up with a state rule to have 100% of electricity in Florida from renewable energy sources by the year 2050. Reynolds was a teenager when she was among a group of children who sued the state in 2018 over the lack of action on climate change. That lawsuit was thrown out, and so the group changed tactics and found two state laws requiring the Agriculture Commissioner to set goals to increase the use of renewable energy. We obviously haven't worked towards that. Um, so we found these statutes and we figured, okay, let's try to find a way that we can get this re-implemented into our government, try to make this a reality. About a month after receiving the petition, the Department of Agriculture made it official. It was working on a rule to establish goals to reduce greenhouse gas pollution in Florida, including, quote, the gradual phase-out of energy production from non-renewable sources, end quote. In other words, cutting back on electricity generated using fossil fuels like natural gas, which is the largest source of energy used by FPL today. Reynolds has been involved since submitting the petition demanding action, meeting with the department and Freed, and plugging into social media. 
Taking action today is super quick and easy. In less than a minute, you can have a huge impact on climate justice in Florida. This was Reynolds in early February, and when we spoke with her last week, Reynolds teased the conclusion of their efforts. On Friday, April 22nd, the Commissioner of Agriculture and her department will be announcing something really exciting about the rule. I can't share it just yet, but keep an eye out for it. Um, It's going to be, quite honestly, a landmark change for the state of Florida when it comes to climate solutions, and I'm very excited about it. The Department of Agriculture would not confirm any announcement to WLRN, But if the commissioner sets goals for Florida electricity to come from renewable energy, it would be the first specific timeline by the state government setting targets to reduce greenhouse gases and increasing clean energy. And if the state takes the step Friday that Reynolds and others have been pushing, laying out goals to use renewable energy here in the Sunshine State, the announcement would come on Earth Day. You're listening to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Email us, sunshineeconomy at wlrnnews.org. Our email address to stay in touch is sunshineeconomy at wlrnnews.org. Each Monday, we examine the stories and hear voices of people shaping South Florida's economy. Be sure to listen to the BBC News Hour Tuesdays through Fridays at 9 a.m. to hear stories and voices from around the globe. Still to come, we'll hear from an activist from a younger generation coming of age at this time of climate change and growing impatient with the lack of change from older generations. I would say that we're fed up with it, quite honestly. I'm Tom Hudson. We're back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Thanks again for listening and supporting public broadcasting. Today on the program, we're featuring two conversations with climate activists, one who has been at it for more than 30 years and the other who is in her early 20s. Delaney Reynolds may be young, but she's been a voice of climate advocates for almost a decade already here in South Florida. Two years ago, she was featured as one of the 10 young climate action activists by National Geographic magazine. A picture of her chest deep in water was the lead photograph. It's a picture that emphasizes one of the areas Reynolds focuses on, raising awareness of sea level rise and its causes. Reynolds grew up in Miami and the Lower Keys. She's now studying for a law degree and a Ph.D. in environmental science and policy at the University of Miami. That's where we met last week to talk about climate change, commerce, and how different generations are using their voices and money. Are younger activists tired of the lack of inaction by older generations? Absolutely. I would say that we're fed up with it, quite honestly. Um, I think that that's something that we've seen manifesting over the last few years, especially right before the pandemic, when you saw children striking every Friday for our futures. Um, And it's something that we've continued to see online through the pandemic, lots of Zoom meetings, arguing and demanding change. Um, But just quite frankly, at least especially in the state of Florida, there's been no climate action. There's been some environmental action the last few years, but no climate action. Explain the difference between those two types of actions and why you think that difference is important. Of course. So environmental action includes all necessary things like preserving the Everglades, restoring its flood patterns, um, you know, restoring beaches that are being washed away as seas continue to rise. And like I said, those are all things that are completely necessary and will continue to be. 
But if we don't address the core cause of our climate change crisis, the use of fossil fuels, burning carbon dioxide into our atmosphere, these things are only going to continue to get worse and worse and worse and cost more and more and more money to the point where we might not have a South Florida or a state of Florida at all. So that's what we need to address. We need to address our use of fossil fuels and address climate change as a whole. So what is the evolving role of young people, of your peers, in addressing climate change, particularly here in Florida, where there's so much vulnerability? So here in Florida, something amazing that I've seen kind of blossom over the last few years is that youth really do have a voice when it comes to our climate change crisis, especially in politics at the local level, the city, commissioners, mayors, um, county level even. There's been a lot of youth action, whether it's working with Miami-Dade County Mayor uh, Daniela Levine-Cava to create a climate emergency for Miami-Dade County, um, or she just came out with an action plan for climate change, which is really exciting. A lot of funding has been allocated lately because of youth speaking up and out, going to commission meetings and hearings and letting their politicians know that we need action. Um, same city of Miami Beach. We're seeing it all over South Florida, which is really amazing because it's a lot of the times youth-led. Um, and that's really exciting. And it gives me a lot of hope for the future in the sense that when these kids who are going out and working with politicians come of age to run for these political positions, they'll hopefully take over. And then maybe we'll finally start to see some real climate action here in the state of Florida. Talk to me a little bit more about the role of demographics the role of age when it comes to this kind of activism. Specifically, I'm thinking about just activism at the ballot box here in Florida. And how do you as a young voter identify uh, where the opportunities are for the kinds of policies that you're advocating for? I see it the same way, depending on demographic. So the last few elections, we have had record numbers of youth 18 to 25 voters coming out to the polls and voting for things that they believe in for the politicians who are going to uphold the promises that we would like to see for our future. And to me, I think that is incredibly inspiring and telling about what the future holds. Um, we're not the biggest population right now. Um, that's kind of the older generation, the baby boomers, if you will. Um, so they often dominate the voting numbers. But I think that as things kind of start to turn and we start to vote more and more as we realize that this is a very important way for us to get our voice out and to get things like climate change solved, um, we're going to see even more of that. So I think that that's something that's actually changing quite significantly. I'd also like to hear about how you think about the power of the purse, the commerce piece of this. Uh, uh, the baby boom generation, older generations have more assets. As you're continuing in your academic career, soon to launch a professional career, of course, you know, you're just uh, that uh, folks in their 20s just beginning to build assets. Uh, how do you think about the power of commerce as it relates again to, to, to addressing climate change? I think it's super important. I think that the way that we spend our money, use our money is incredibly important. And I think that it's something that we have to think about more and more so as we move forward through the future. It's going to be expensive to solve climate change, even on the individual level, phasing out plastics and buying metal containers and straws or 
you know, initially installing a solar installation on your roof can be expensive from the get-go, but as time goes on, you gain that money back. As we continue to spend this initial money to better our environment, down the line, it's not going to be as expensive. If things stay as they are, it's going to cost trillions of dollars. I don't even know what trillions of dollars looks like, but that's what it's going to cost if we don't start to change our mindset and our attitude towards these daily changes. How do you make that argument, though, to someone in their early 20s who's just starting out in a professional career, just beginning to get perhaps a regular paycheck, is looking at thousands of dollars potentially in student loans, uh, trying to set up a life, looking at the cost of living, housing, uh, ambition to, you know, create uh, the kind of assets that have traditionally been part of an American life. Yeah, so I would say, you know, it's a step-by-step process. It's not a complete phase-out all at once. Um, You're not going to make your entire home sustainable within a month or a year or even two. It's going to take a decade, maybe more. And that's okay. As long as we start working on it and get to that point eventually, that will be better for our environment than simply doing nothing and staying on the track that we are right now. Delaney, you've been a youth activist in the environment here in South Florida since you were a teenager. How has that conversation between generations changed, do you think, uh, throughout your activism in climate change? That's a really interesting question because, in my view, it's been a complete 180. When I learned about climate change, it was on my own time. It wasn't in a classroom setting. Talked to my classmates no one had heard about it. I did research on my own to find out what it was about. And now it's something that's actively talked probably about every day, whether it's in a classroom setting or amongst peers. It's something that we are extremely concerned about. We know that if we don't do anything about this, we're going to be forced to move from Florida. There is certainly more of a conversation between my generation, the youth generation, and adults today. I'd say it's almost like we're on the same level and we almost use each other to achieve the things that we want. People are listening to us and what we want and what we're demanding when it comes to climate solutions. Because Florida is such an epicenter of the effects of climate change and so much in the news, right, about climate change and seen as a canary in the coal mine of climate change, do you think the generational conversation is different here in Florida as you connect with other environmental youth activists across the country? Absolutely. So when I talk to other environmental youth activists across the country and even across the world, they often say that it's difficult to form a relationship with people who are older and kind of get the ball rolling and creating solutions. Um, in a lot of parts of the country, the mindset is simply, it's not going to affect me, I don't have to worry about it, or it doesn't exist. Um, So I've seen, you know, in places where they're not seeing direct impacts, you know, we're seeing flooding. People in California are seeing wildfires. Um, It's physical, visual evidence that it's happening. In places where they don't have that, where it's just getting warmer, it's really easy for them to just say, "Eh, you know, weather changes. That's not what's happening, though. Um, It's, you know, weather changing, climate changing over a long cycle, a long period of time. Um, So the conversation is much different and much more difficult, quite candidly. We will hear more from South Florida climate activist Delaney Reynolds about how she's pushing the state of Florida to set goals to use renewable energy a little bit later on in this program. 
This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Check out our podcast by searching Sunshine Economy on your favorite podcast app, leave a review, and hit subscribe. Still to come, how a veteran climate activist is hoping to get an older generation to use their money to fight climate change. It's both wrong morally and impractical to demand that the biggest problems in the world be solved by 17-year-olds. This is the Sunshine Economy. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening to WLRN. Bill McKibben has been arguing to pay attention to climate change since the late 1980s, before the phrase climate change was well known outside the scientific and environmental communities. In his first book, The End of Nature, McKibben wrote this, Changes that can affect us can happen in our lifetime in our world, not just changes like wars, but bigger and more sweeping events. I believe that without recognizing it, We have already stepped over the threshold of such a change, that we are at the end of nature. That was in 1989. 33 years later, I spoke with McKibben. He was in South Florida in March for the Festival of the Arts Boca. One of the fastest growing demographics in Florida is the over 60 years old crowd. You started Third Act, an organization that brings together people over 60 on climate change and racial justice issues. Why is this age group your focus, other than a reflection of where you are in your life experience? (laughs) Yes. Well, let me tell you a story. I mean, I've spent most of my life working with young people to organize stuff. I started the first big climate campaign, 350.org, with seven college students. I've gotten the enormous privilege of working with amazing leaders like Greta Thunberg, who I just love. She's one of my favorite people in the world. And there's a lot of, a lot, a lot of young people like that, junior high and high school students who are just at the forefront of all of this. I spent part of September, a week or so in September, writing college recommendations for people I just think of as colleagues in this work. It just happens they're 17 and it's time for them to go to college. I, at some point, began to think, this is, it's both wrong morally and impractical to demand that the biggest problems in the world be solved by 17-year-olds, you know, to sort of tell them that in between algebra homework and field hockey practice, they also have to save the world. And that's especially so because the demographic that I belong to, the over 60 crowd, has most of the power. There are 70 million of us in this country, so that's bigger than the population of France. We vote in astonishing numbers. <laughs> so, so nothing happens in Washington without our say-so. And fairly or not, we ended up with all the money. of the financial assets in the country belong to people in the baby boom or the silent generation above them, compared with 5% for millennials. So if we want Wall Street, if we want the big banks to stop funding the fossil fuel industry, for instance, it's up to us. So that's why this third act thing got started. Now, people say people get more conservative as they age. And there's something to that. You Maybe you have more. So you mean politically conservative? Yes. Or you just, the whole prospect of change just gets more distressing for you or something. But 
I don't think that I mean, that can't be true if we're going to address these issues. And I don't think it probably needs to be true of these generations. If you're over 60 now, it means that in your first act, when you were young, you were around either to participate in or at least bear witness to truly amazing cultural, social, political change. So the women's movement, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the first Earth Day. Yeah, you know, maybe in our second act, taken as a whole, we were a little more interested in consumerism than in citizenship, you know, but that is water under the bridge. And now in our third act, we have lots of resources, lots of skills that we've acquired. We've got time, which is a very precious commodity, and we've got kids and grandkids. And so people are coming together. The two issues that we work on are really defending democracy and defending the climate. And I think what people are saying is, we took for granted some things we shouldn't have taken for granted. One was the stability of our democracy. For most of us of a certain age, it was weird to watch people trying to take over the US Capitol and stop the counting of votes in an election. For most of us, it's really weird to watch the Arctic melt because the Arctic's been there for our whole lives, you know, but we've had coral reefs our whole lives. So people are rallying now and it's been so fun to watch that happen and to watch people bring a sense of their own history to bear on these issues. Talk a little bit more about what I'll call a generational epiphany of sorts, because it has been pointed out by many, this is the same generation that hasn't acted earlier in large numbers on climate change and other issues. Yep. No, I mean, look, uh, you know, people, a lot of people started saying, okay, boomer a few years ago, because <laughs> they were kind of tired of, you know, our generation not stepping up. So now hopefully people are. One of the things that's really interesting, Tom, is that the cultural icons of this era are still in many cases around and ready to go to work. So very early on, we've had Carol King as a big supporter. I just did a wonderful interview with Bette Midler for our next big national monthly call at Third Act. Uh, Neil Young, uh, Norman Lear, and just all kinds of icons of this generation who remind us of how much we hoped for a better world when we were a certain age. Now it's time to hope again. I, you know, sometimes I, there's a famous quote from someone saying, if you are not an idealist when you're 20, you have no heart. And if you're still an idealist when you're 30, you have no head, you know. But if you're not an idealist when you're 60 or 70, then you've got no grandkids. We really, really need to be pushing now. Let me ask you about how this relates to Florida, which is a state with a sizable population over 60, and also increasingly conservative state politically. How does Florida play into your ambitions? I think it's the, the, one of the places that will tell the story here. And I think that older Floridians have to make a choice. Look, you can either go with what I think is the single most rotten bumper sticker I've ever seen, the one you see on a bunch of Winnebago's sometimes that says, I'm spending my kid's inheritance. That's 
gross. I mean, I mean, I know it's a joke, but if you think about it for 10 minutes, it's what too many people are doing, and it's just disgusting. That's not how our parents or grandparents viewed the world. They were committed to making the world a better place for us, giving us every chance. So I hope that more and more people will make the decision instead to defend their kids' inheritance. Uh, to give an example, you know, we've got people um, running this campaign to get people to stand up to the big banks, Chase, City, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, the four biggest funders of fossil fuel in the world. We're saying to them, stop doing that. Stop funding the expansion of oil and gas, or by year's end, we're going to close our accounts and cut up our credit cards. And it's been really fun to watch all kinds of older people saying, you know what? I've got a pair of scissors in my drawer and I know how to use them. I can cut up that credit card and find a new one if I need to. And I'm completely willing to do it. Truthfully, uh, half the problem is keeping people from doing it right away so that we can do it all at once. And the other half of the problem is people are ready for much more. We hear over and over, we, we did a poll of the third act membership fully half of them, and remember, these are all older people, say, I want to go, I'm willing to go to jail to try and slow down these things. People want to do civil disobedience. We need elders acting the way that elders should act in a working civilization. And that's what we're aiming for. You ask baby boomers to use their personal assets, their financial assets as leverage, asking them to use the banking system in a way to sign a pledge to close those bank accounts or to cut up credit cards of uh, banks if the uh, large banks don't disinvest or stop financing fossil fuel projects. How practical is that kind of pledge? And are you asking banks, for instance, to stop doing business with gas stations? Is that as far well, as this pledge no, goes? No, I mean, what really people are asking is for these banks to stop funding the expansion of fossil fuels. What we don't need are new projects, you know, new pipelines, new drilling schemes, all the things that are supposed to last for 30, 40, 50 years, because there's not a scientist in the world who thinks that we can be doing this stuff 30 years from now. <laughs> it's both penny foolish and pound foolish to be doing it now and in just worst possible ways. So that's what people are standing up for. And I think it's actually quite possible that it'll be very effective. You know, I, I helped launch this fossil fuel divestment campaign to get institutions to sell their stock in coal and oil and gas. We're at $40 trillion now in endowments and portfolios that have done that. It's become the biggest campaign of its kind in history, and it's had huge effect. Shell Oil said in its annual report two years ago that this had become a material risk to its business, which is good news because Shell's business is a material risk to life on planet Earth. Companies are required to uh, issue those material risks to shareholders. As you and I are talking in the spring of 2022, stock prices of major oil companies and exploration companies are at some multi-year highs as the price of oil has jumped up. Yeah, they've gone up for a little while. The question is, can they keep this going or is this going to be the last gasp of the oil industry? And really for them, it's a difficult moment. Yes, they're making money hand over fist, but you know, $4.50 or $5 gasoline makes some money in the short run. But every time everybody goes to the pump, they're thinking, huh, 
uh, maybe I'd like one of those electric Ford F-150s that they're talking about. I've had a EV now for three years, four years. I pay about a fifth as much per mile to run it as someone who has a gas vehicle at this point. And it's a way better car. It's quiet. If you really like to accelerate, it accelerates way faster than anything you've got in your garage. And there's no moving parts. There's nothing to fix. It doesn't break. This is the the end of something. The point is, though, that to catch up with the physics and to undermine the Vladimir Putins of the world, we have to accelerate the pace at which that conclusion comes. The EV, I think, is a good example, Bill, of how embedded fossil fuel is in a number of different things beyond just energy prices. Gasoline taxes, for instance, are used and collected by the federal government and often state governments and some local governments to help improve and fix roads. For those like yourself, Bill, that aren't going to the pump, you're using the roads, but yet not generating the tax dollars. Right. So for a little while, it makes sense to award people with EVs some kind of prize for being you know, willing to step up to, to help the common good. But you know what? That's the kind of problem we should be able to solve as a society. Like, how do you replace the gas tax? That's not an existential problem. Like, how do you replace the Arctic? These are the things that we should not allow to get in the way of making change. These are the kind of things that wise policymakers deal with. What are some of the personal economic obstacles that you may encounter with your third act effort? And here, particularly, I'm thinking of a retiree, for instance, living off a fixed income, dealing with higher energy prices or the financial cost to switch to renewable energy for personal consumption. Well, this is why it makes much more sense for us to be organizing politically than spending all our time trying to improve our own particular carbon footprint. It's important to do that. But truthfully, until we get good government policy, it's more expensive than it should be to make those shifts. And that's why I routinely say the most important thing an individual can do at this point is be less of an individual, join together with others in movements large enough to shift the economics and the politics. We're past the point where we can actually solve this crisis one Tesla at a time. We need to be able to move it, you know, one senator at a time, one government at a time. If we do that, then we'll put the policies in place that will make it possible for everybody to join in this clean tech revolution. That's environmentalist, activist, and author Bill McKibben. You're listening to The Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Still to come, how local governments and communities are responding to the threat and rising cost of climate change. As much as I love Florida and Floridians, I wonder a little bit because we've been putting up maps now for three decades, demonstrating without any doubt what's going to happen to the southernmost part of our nation as the temperature rises. It's not going to be there anymore as dry land. I'm Tom Hudson. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Thanks for listening. 
The latest report from global scientists about climate change had a stark warning. It said some of the impacts of climate change cannot be stopped, and Florida is a place where some irreversible changes have already happened. The United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has issued six reports in the last 30 years. Its latest assessment out earlier this year singles out Florida as a place where rising seas are expected to lead people to move away from the coast, how tidal flooding has already cost hundreds of millions of dollars in lost property values, and how adapting to flooding can be a boost to regional real estate. We asked Bill McKibben about these kinds of scientific warnings and how communities and governments are responding. McKibben is a longtime climate activist, author, and teacher. We spoke in March when he was in South Florida for the Festival of the Arts, Boca. The United Nations IPCC report that was released earlier this year talked about how climate change impacts and risks are becoming increasingly complex and more difficult to manage. Here in Florida, how should people think about those warnings? Well... <laughs> they should think about them quickly <laughs> while, while, while their heads are still above water, you know? Sometimes, as much as I love Florida and Floridians, I wonder a little bit because we've been putting up maps now for three decades, demonstrating without any doubt what's going to happen to the southernmost part of our nation as the temperature rises. It's not going to be there anymore as dry land. That's not alarmism. That's just physics, you know. Florida kind of is the microcosm of, in certain ways, of all these um, trends. If there's any place that has reason to think about it, it's Florida because of rising sea levels. If there's any place that has uh, the great ability to do something about it, it's Florida. I believe that you call yourselves the sunshine state. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, Explain a little bit more what you mean by if there's any place else who could do something about it, it's Florida. What I mean is the sun is useful for more than tanning your skin. When one flies in to Miami or Fort Lauderdale or Orlando, if one sits next to the window on the plane and looks down, the most shocking thing is to see how few solar panels there are. When I fly into Burlington, Vermont, up at the northern edge of the country, I look out the window and see far more people who've taken the initiative to put solar panels on their roof, even though they don't work as well there. Partly that's because Florida Power and Light's done everything it can to make sure that it's difficult for people to put solar on their roof. And your governor has been a big assist in that endeavor. Look, you, you have a powerful resource that you could be making endlessly more use of. And you have great reason to do it because you're in one of the most beautiful, most threatened places on earth. You know, years ago, uh, followed John Muir's, uh, the first, in some ways, the first environmentalist. Very famous naturalist. Yeah. His trek to the, his thousand mile walk to the Gulf from started in Louisville, Kentucky, and ended in Cedar Key. And I, I spent some days wandering across those parts of Florida and was impressed again, all over again, with how incredibly beautiful Florida is and what an incredible and unparalleled ecosystem in many ways it is and, and so on and so forth. And Florida is a wealthy place. It has the resources necessary to defend itself and, and the world. It's just stuck, you know, as so many 
places are in this weird dysfunctional politics of the moment. Let me ask a little bit more about your description or politics of the moment. This report from the scientists that were gathered together by the United Nations said, quote, any further delay in concerted global action will miss a brief and rapidly closing window to secure a livable future. Yeah. Quite the warning. So yes. how should local governments think about adapting to the threats of climate change and addressing the causes of climate change? So that's exactly the right way to think about it. The IPCC, this group, has in fact put a very firm date on what they're talking about for that rapidly closing window. They've said that unless we've cut emissions in half by 2030, our chances of hitting the targets we set in Paris just six years ago are nil. We're in April, so 2030 by my watch is, what, seven years and eight months away. That's not much time. That's not we're we're under two presidential terms. Yeah, yeah. If you have a child today, he or she may be in first grade by that time. Exactly. So what that means is that we need local, state, and federal officials actually working this problem, not talking about what they're going to do in 2050 or trying to make return. We need them doing the things that are now possible to do. The fact that renewable energy dropped 90% in price in the last decade is the single most favorable factor we have. It means that there's no longer a technological or economic obstacle to making rapid change. But someone has to make it. They have to be willing to overcome the inertia and the vested interest. What are the roles then of those different levels of government for adaptation, for mitigation efforts, for resiliency, and finally for addressing the causes of climate change? What role does a city hall, a county hall, a state capital, and the national capital play in this? So the federal government has control over the purse strings in the largest sense. If we were smart, we would quickly pass the Build Back Better bill. You know, your senators would do the right thing and make sure that we pass this because it has uh, $500 billion in tax credits that would quickly spur the development of a lot of renewable energy. At the state level, we've, you can spend some money, and so they should be doing a, a lot of that themselves. But more, it's about changing regulations so that we're moving entities like Florida Power and Light to be making um, real advances instead of playing defense all the time, putting real pressure on them. At the local level, there's a lot that can be done to change the way that our cities work, things like bike paths and better bus lanes and things like that. There's also the really important work of making it much easier to install necessary stuff like solar panels on your roof. It costs about twice as much to install solar power in the U.S. as it does, say, in Australia. Not because the panels are any more expensive. They're the same price everywhere because they've streamlined the regulatory environment in places like Australia so that you don't need as many permits, inspectors, uh, uh, on and on and on to get it done. It's much easier to get it up quick and fast. There's new legislation here in Florida that creates for the first time a state office of resilience. And among the charges for that office is to prioritize projects to protect against rising seas. 
there was a Democratic effort to also have this office make recommendations to address the root causes of sea level rise and more flooding that Florida has been experiencing. That Democratic effort was defeated. So my question, Bill, for you is knowing that, what can be the impact of types of state-level responses, ultimately, when there's still very much state politics at play? If you don't slow down the rate at which we're warming the planet, it's going to be very difficult to have effective ways to keep up with that rise in temperature. What I'm trying to say is you can't build seawalls fast enough to keep up with the rise that's coming if we don't limit the increase in temperature. Do states have much of ability to affect the trajectory of carbon emissions? Yeah, states have. I mean, look, the U.S. puts out an enormous percentage of the world's carbon. Florida is a huge part of the U.S. I mean, Floridians, I don't have the numbers sitting in front of me, but Florida is a big and wealthy state. So it is producing massive amounts of carbon. And if it changes, it makes it, I mean, every, remember, every time that we double the installation of solar power in the world, the price of it goes down another 30%. So if we do what we can here in the wealthy world fast, that makes it much cheaper and easier for India and Malaysia and every place else to be doing this. I mean, this has got to be a momentum game at this point. Get the ball rolling where we can and then play it out around the planet. Climate activist and author Bill McKibben. You're listening to The Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. On the podcast of this episode, you can hear an extra part of our interview with McKibben about Russia's war in Ukraine and why he thinks climate change is not a casualty of the violence. Because fossil fuel is concentrated in a few places, the people who control it are always going to be more powerful than they deserve. The good news about sun and wind is there's some of it everywhere. In fact, in Florida, there's a ton of it. So nobody gets to control the destiny of states in quite that way. Search Sunshine Economy on your podcast app, and you can hear this program along with a bonus conversation with environmentalist Bill McKibben on how Russia's war could be a turning point in how the world approaches fossil fuel. Still to come, lessons learned by a young climate activist trying to affect change in Florida. Politics, politics, politics. Oh, boy. Uh, It gets in the way of everything. It's a long process, is what I learned. I'm Tom Hudson. This is The Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Thanks for listening. As a teenager, Delaney Reynolds took on the state of Florida over climate change. She was the lead plaintiff in a lawsuit over pollution. Lawyers for the state argued there is no legal guarantee to protect the climate from the causes of climate change. A state circuit court judge eventually dismissed the case. The judge said the concerns in the lawsuit were legitimate, but they were not a matter for the court. Reynolds and others then demanded the state follow two laws passed several years ago directing the Department of Agriculture to come up with goals to switch electricity production from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Reynolds expects an announcement about these goals will be made Friday, on Earth Day. I spoke with Reynolds about her efforts and hopes last week. You were part of the group 
who sued the state of Florida in 2018 for the lack of action on climate change. That lawsuit was eventually thrown out. It was dismissed. What were some of the lessons that you have taken away from that experience? Politics, politics, politics. Oh, boy. Uh, It gets in the way of everything. It's a long process is what I learned. And I got to learn a lot about the inner workings of our government and our judicial system. You're using two state laws in Florida that go back years to uh, have the State Department of Agriculture set concrete renewable energy goals for the state of Florida. The Commissioner of Agriculture, Nikki Freed, who's running for the Democratic nomination for governor, has agreed to do that, to set those goals. What would you like to see with those goals if they come out of the Department of Agriculture? What would you like to have, as a Floridian, a renewable energy goal in your state? I mean, if we could realistically shift Florida towards 100% renewable energy by 2050, that would be the dream. Um, There are scientists from NOAA who predict that half of Florida's energy could come from the sun by 2045. So even if we started to begin that process of shifting, we could create a lot of energy for the state of Florida at a reasonably inexpensive price. Um, So I would love to see that. And if you are successful in getting the state of Florida and the Department of Agriculture to set a goal for renewable energy. Is that goal for Floridians? Is that goal for the state government use of energy? It's for everything. So it sets the goal for the state government to try to help Floridians themselves shift towards that. So working with utility companies like Florida Power and Light or Duke Energy um, or Keys Energy to shift their focus from typical electric generation processes that burn fossil fuels towards sustainable energy like solar power. Does it also include vehicles? In a sense, um, yeah. So it doesn't necessarily explicitly say that we have to shift our vehicles, but I think that's already coming with time. You see companies, obviously Tesla is just still in its infant stages, but it's a very popular brand. They have amazing battery facilities all over the states. Um, and then we're also seeing companies like Ford, General Motors, create and shift towards solely producing electric vehicles. So I think that's going to come with time regardless. Oftentimes when regulators talk about renewable energy, I think it's assumed it's focused on electrical generation. But we know that that's not the only source of carbon, certainly, in the environment, where transportation is a significant source. And so how does transportation figure in, do you think, into any renewable energy goal that the state of Florida may articulate? Well, so if you've got solar panels on your house and you've got an electric car, you're charging your electric car using solar power. That's as good as it gets when it comes to trying to help the environment. You aren't creating any carbon dioxide, any carbon footprint. And I suppose the gas station could use solar panels to create the electricity to power the gasoline pumps, but you're still then putting gasoline into an internal combustion engine. Right, but even still, that's a step in the right direction, and that's what we need to be taking. We need to take those steps in the right direction and get to that point where it's all solar, all electric cars eventually. The goal is to get there eventually, but it's not going to happen in a day or a month or a year. It's going to take until 2050. It could take longer, but 2050 is the goal to help our environment in the best way possible. But it's going to take these baby steps one at a time. There's a new state law that uh, Florida has that takes effect July 1st that creates for the first time an office of resilience 
in the state of Florida and creates a chief resilience officer for the state. What do you hope to come out of that? I hope that he creates or finds a chief resilience officer that will really help the state of Florida start to implement the solutions that we need, try to help us achieve these 2050 goals of net zero energy. I have a hard time believing that Governor DeSantis is really serious about this position um, and, you know, electing someone who should be just as serious because Florida doesn't need a figurehead in this position. Florida needs and deserves someone who is going to take climate change seriously, someone who is going to demand that we address the core cause of climate change, which is the use of fossil fuels, and start to work with our state government to transition our society from one based on fossil fuels to one based on renewable energy. That's what we need. Hopefully the person that he appoints is someone who is very knowledgeable in the topic and knows exactly what Florida needs. South Florida climate activist and University of Miami graduate student Delaney Reynolds. You can find a podcast of this program, including some bonus material. Search Sunshine Economy on your favorite podcast app. Joe Johnson is our technical director. Polly Landis, our booking producer. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. WLRN Public Media.